Hey, Christina. Hey, Kara. How are you this morning? I am so excited to be co-hosting with you the first time that we are together on this show. Very first. Incredibly exciting. As we both sit with our mugs of caffeine. Oh, tears of the patriarchy. Mine is just a (laughs) cool design from a uh, Middle Eastern restaurant in Philly where I got this mug. So, (laughs) What's it called? Let's let's pause that. No, so the restaurant is called Sahab. And it is maybe the most amazing meal I've ever had in my life to the point that I asked the server if they put drugs in the food because I felt like I was on an altered plane of existence. So, <laughs> is there, there really any reason else to have a meal except to to be in that at that level? That's yeah. that's got to feel good for this. It's got to feel good, but job. also like now all food just tastes like garbage. Oh no, <laughs> the bar was set too high, way too high, but also so good. Love Philly and love Philly food. Uh, however, we're basic. We're talking about the East Coast right now, but our guest today comes from the West Coast. Uh, So we have uh, Dr. Carol Walsh-Scheffler joining us on the show today, and she is professor and co-chair of biology at Seattle Pacific University, and also is an affiliate professor where you're at, Christina, which is Department of Anthropology at the University of Washington. Uh, Her Hmm. research focuses on the evolution of human sexual dimorphism, particularly in the context of balancing the pressures of thermoregulation and long-distance locomotion. Uh, And she's been working on this problem for over 20 years now and has had a whole fantastic rash of publications coming out talking about these uh, various issues. And her work shows very clearly that different selective pressures have acted on men and women and that women in particular have a rare, particularly among mammals, ability to work both efficiently and economically when carrying loads. Uh, And this is due in some part to the relatively small body size, high surface area, broader pelvis, and then some really unique methods of thermoregulation. Uh, so let's go ahead and bring on, which this will also be the first show in which there are two Karas, both right. with C's. <laughs> I don't know how we're going to handle this. <laughs> it's a thing. But anyway, let's bring her on. Okay. Hello. <laughs> Hi. Welcome. Thank you. How are you doing today, Kara? <sighs> how are you, Kara? I know this is the best part. I was just saying, first time you took Kara's on the show. It's so rare, especially with C's. I know, and with C's. Like I was so, I was so interested when I first saw your name like pop up on a AA, whatever at the time, whatever. When I saw it, I was like, "What do you think? Is she gonna be a Kara or is she gonna be a Kara too?" Amazing. Amazing. Do you have the complex that I still have that growing up you could never find your name on like named things as a kid keychains I do have that complex right so I do I have ridiculous things because it like actually had my name on it so I bought it even though I'm like this is dumb I don't need it but it is so exciting when it you is. see C-A-R-A <laughs> and it's and still so rare it's Spanish or like there's tons and tons, but it's like, it pops up on billboards. So I was in Spain and it was mm-hmm. like, and I was like taking a picture of the billboard. <laughs> That's how exciting it is to see our name somewhere. Yeah. It's amazing that, you know, as we are well into third, fourth and beyond decades of our life yeah. that I still check like <laughs> keychain racks for my name. Like this is an oddly deep wound that will never heal. <laughs> it feels- it feels that way. Feels anyway, that way. 
how are you and where are you? Because I know you've been traveling. Yeah, I've been traveling a ton and I am actually currently in Seattle. Oh, so yeah, back here for the term. So okay. yeah, Christina, are you in Seattle right now? I am yeah. just starting to move our way out of spider season and into the first realm of wetness for the fall where yeah. it will continue to proceed until yeah. July. Wait, did you call it spider season? Yeah, yeah. it's a thing. Please yeah, explain. Thing. <laughs> um, uh, those of you who are arachnophobes, this is, you know, a time to maybe just return in like 30 seconds, a minute or so. Um, so we have these lovely little giant house spiders. Um, little is not the correct term. They're they're pretty big. They can be up to about four inches across with their Wait, legs. I'm the sorry, bodies are not this big. What? Four mm -hmm. inches? Oh, yeah. yeah, you can't really like, there's no capture and release that can really happen because you, you're you going to struggle to find a vessel large enough to contain them. I mean, you can hear them run across the floor. That's that's how large they actually are. And they are, I guess they, am I remembering this right, Kara? They're, they're molting or they're coming to adulthood and then they, in August, and then they run around your house looking they're for looking a mate. For yeah, yeah, they're looking for mates right now. And they Marvelous. really like to find their mate around water. And mm. so you tend to find them in your kitchen, in your bathroom, which mm -hmm. is kind of the last place you want a spider sort of as big as your hand to jump out at you. I would yeah. say my bed is the number one place yeah. I don't oh, want that to happen. That's where You're I found the last one. That's ah. where I found the last one. Yeah. So, hold so on. I contemplated burning the house down for a brief moment. And then I thought, well... That might be a bit extreme, just a little. Rent is so expensive here. I thought, you know, that would collect on the fire insurance. But now I have to bet, you know, the, the question of is the state of Washington actually a part of Australia? Yeah. They're and not, not the United States. Yeah, they're not. They're not dangerous. Neither yeah. are the bird eating. If you have a heart spiders. problem, they are. But like the Ooh. bird eating spiders of Australia aren't dangerous either, but they're the size of my head. Yeah. So, you That's know, true. okay. This this interview has started off in kind of a horrifying way. I mean, granted, it's a new starting off. We often talk about saliva and feces and whatnot. So this is, you know, a new turn. I'm good with it. <laughs> anyway, Kara, thank you so much for taking the time out of your schedule to join us today. Um, given a lot of your recent publications, you and I have lots and lots of things I think we could talk about for hours uh, and maybe we should make some time in LA to do so Absolutely. Uh, but anyway let's let's hear a little bit about more about you and your journey into anthropology tell us your yeah. origin story oh my goodness well I always knew I was gonna be an academic or like I wanted to be an academic my dad was also a professor and when I compared his lifestyle with the lifestyle of my mom or with other people, I was like, that seems like I want to spend the day talking about ideas and people paying me to go to cool places to talk about ideas again. That definitely seems like the job that I want. So I sort of had a life goal to go to graduate school and then try to figure out if I could make an academic life work for me. So that was definitely a thing. Um, my interest in locomotion is a little bit more funny, I think, because I, um, I can't see. I'm wearing extremely strong contact lenses right now. And I don't know what it was like when you were growing up. When I was growing up, like 
there were eye charts and there was like a big E at the top. So I can't see that E at all. And so Wait, has this been like, for, for life for you? Since middle school. Middle school, okay. Since middle school, I stopped being able to see the big E. And I didn't, that was a long enough time ago that contacts were really expensive and um, just hard to acquire. And because my dad wasn't academic, we were pretty poor. And so I had glasses and at the time, nerdy 11 year old Kara was really shy about wearing her glasses and being teased. And so I, I didn't wear my glasses and I couldn't see faces. And so the only way I would know what was going on is by seeing people's posture. And I could identify people in high school by how they walked because I couldn't see their faces at all. And, um, and I got really interested around that time in how I could tell who the people were by their gait, if they were happy with their day or not happy with their day or all the things that we actually change about our posture and locomotion based on, um, based on our feelings. And so uh, when I went to graduate school, I was really interested in questions of mobility. And then I got a little distracted maybe by actually having to finish my PhD. Um, so then when I got my postdoc to specifically study locomotion, I sort of felt like everything was coming together. And so then I've been able to work on this in this area ever since. That is such a fascinating way to come about, you know, spending all this time really needing to kind of survive socially by yeah. noticing how people are moving and, and the differences between them. That is that is so nifty. So uh, as many times as I've had an opportunity to hear you speak at uh, at the University of Washington, which has always been an absolute treat, I, I've been excited because it's not as as often that you really get to hear somebody come and speak about the biology mm -hmm. side of sort of a feminist anthropological view. Um, and, I, and I absolutely love that about your work. And it seems as though that type of conversation is happening more frequently now. Yeah. You've got all of these publications coming out that are revolving around women's locomotor capabilities, hunting capabilities, really trying to shift this narrative of men doing the you know heavy lifting in terms of conversations around what really were we capable of and trying to break down these biases. Yeah, This has happened before, but do you feel like this wave is a little bit different? Do you feel like it's here to stay? What do you think is spurring that on? Yeah, I feel like, I think this is such an interesting question. And I've actually, I've been thinking about this for a long time. And I've definitely been thinking about this over this summer when it feels like the attention to this issue has really sparkled and it's been really interesting to see. So I think there are two parts. One, I approach, well, I love being a biological anthropologist because I think humans are so interesting in the way that we manage environmental pressures by creating culture 
to sort of buffer us in some ways. I think that's really interesting. But I have always sort of begun from the starting point where we are biological creatures evolving and therefore our bodies have to be able to solve problems put in front of us by nature, by the environment, by whatever. And so the idea that women's bodies have to solve all of the same problems and more because there is no fitness if your females can't do a good job at what they're doing, there is even more pressure on women's bodies to be amazing than I think that there are on men's bodies. And just like digging down to what that looks like in a highly mobile species like ourselves means that women have to be able to have the physiology, the biomechanics, the kinesthetics in order to be excellent locomotors. And then the other piece of that for women that I think is really underappreciated is that we have to be able to do that across a variable life history. So we have to be able to do that as children. We have to be able to do that when we reproduce. We have to be able to do that between pregnancies. We have to be able to do that in a post-reproductive lifespan. And that like the fact that we can make different choices at these different parts of our lifespan and sort of up and down regulate certain processes but the fact that it still has to work effectively for our population to survive is one of i mean that's what gets me up out of bed in the morning i just find these problems incredible now why i think it's important right now is i would love to also hear what you all think about this because honestly especially this hunting paper i mean women people people have been publishing about this forever. There is a chapter on women hunting in Man the Hunter. There is a chapter about women hunting in Woman the Gatherer. People have been saying since the early 1980s, it's not anecdotal if everybody's doing it. So why now? Why has it been so exciting now? I think a big piece of it is that there are more people asking these questions at every level. There are more women and people of color in graduate school than ever before. There are more questions when you apply for grants, when you apply for symposia, when you apply to approach, have you cited everybody you can possibly cite or are you just citing the same old, same old? And so that practice of, I feel as if my research is thorough, that practice of, I feel I have read widely from humans doing science, from disciplines related to this area, and that I feel I'm covering my bases, the more times that people are asked to justify who they are citing and why, the easier it is for these ideas to stick in the literature, because it's not just like one person citing themselves over and over again right? It's everybody trying to trying to recognize that they've read widely enough. So I think these sorts of pieces are, are coming together. And I, I do think it's going to last because, I mean, you just can't get more clear data than the data that are coming out right now. P.S. I think it also helps that women are just winning everything, You know, I think that the winning of all of the endurance events over and over and over again, which Kara talks about really well in her Sapiens article and also in this American Anthropologist article, I think just, you know, 
pregnant and lack, like lactating women winning ultras, you, right. you start to ask. Mm -hmm. And three months postpartum at that. And so, yeah, I, I, I hadn't thought about the citation piece that you brought up that we are actually being able we are being asked to assess our own bias in our citation yeah. and in our writing. Uh, but I think that's other, another big part of it is that it's led to this whole sort of self-reflection of, yeah. right, what have I read and done? Like in grad school, feminist anthropology, we never read any of it. That was never part of any class. No. And, you know, same thing in intro textbooks and whatnot in undergrad. And it's, it's also like, that's kind of, how I started along this path was my powerlifting career and the comments guys would make about my strength and body as a, as a woman. And then also thinking about what I was teaching my students in class and realizing there's this heavy, heavy undercurrent of a sex-based bias of our human evolutionary story. And sorry, but fuck that shit. Like, <laughs> how can you rationally in any way think that evolution was only working on half of the population that it's males where there isn't quite the same limitation when it comes to actual pregnancy and lactation that, hey, heads up, are likely the reasons why we're so endurance capable. <laughs> anyway, sorry, I soapbox for a bit. <laughs> I, yeah, and I'm so excited about your presentation in LA because I having gone through 42 hours of labor and then being like, wow, I actually like I could I could go and walk like a couple of miles now there. Are, you don't need to run a marathon once a year to know how powerful hormones are to make you do something hard. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I see you and I working on a paper together about pregnancy I, and endurance. I, Heads up. I totally. <laughs> that's on. Yeah, that's on. We'll, we'll be writing that outline during the, the LA meetings. Anyway, let's yeah. get to the work that you've had come out recently mm. in the past couple of years, uh, yeah. because I want to make sure we highlight that awesomeness sure. uh, because you and I could jibber jabber and poor Christina yeah. would be like, good Lord, the Karas <laughs> no. need to shut the hell up. All right. No, wait, I, I just, I did want to add one thing that I, I to, to Kara's point about what, what has sort of shifted and, mm. and the citation thing is also something I hadn't thought of, but when I came to, to thinking about anthropology and thinking about human evolution, I was raised by a single mother. And I, so whenever I, I would hear these stories about, you know, how there was this, that women were somehow dependent on the men for survival, that struck me as not not reality. Um, and it isn't that, that it couldn't be as a circumstance. We were certainly reliant on our social networks. Uh, absolutely, no question there. We're we're certainly you know dependent on our allies. But the the conversation around those allies needing to be male, yeah, absolutely, seemed out of pocket <laughs> in some way when I think about all the ways that my mother was so outrageously capable mm -hmm. of doing so many things on her own I just thought how is anybody going to survive if they can't do things yeah. to some degree on their own so the idea that there had to be a man there that there had to be a male in order for us to hack it yeah. just wasn't representative of my reality and I think that for a lot of people particularly male researchers that feeds into a, a narrative that is very comfortable for them mm -hmm. and is and is also one that is very prolific in in society anyway so th you needn't challenge that if you're staying with the status quo if you're staying with that conversation about men being um this necessary part mm -hmm. of of survival mm -hmm. always yeah, yeah talk I mean, to any other mammalian 
female mm-hmm. <laughs> that, have, that do not get any form of support and have to maintain hunting and whatnot on their own or or yeah. foraging on their own. But yeah, yeah, it is this idea of like forced male relevance, I feel to some degree to make yeah. sure that there's this massive role that they had to have played. Yeah. But again, that's had the out the outside impact yeah. on this field and it's been the the dominant narrative. Anyway, anyway. So let's get in with this of let's talk about the ways in which females have been discussed within human evolution. And and so much of it within biological anthropology and evolutionary anthropology focuses on the pelvis and this idea of constraints and trade-offs that kind of, you know, as Holly Dunsworth would say, is painting females as inferior or insufficient because there's this supposed trade-off. Um so you have this newish paper out with Helen Kirkey uh, in evolutionary anthropology discussing the ways in which the pelvis has actually been analyzed and assessed in an evolutionary context. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you two go on to talk about the ways where maybe we should be talking about it and the ways it should be analyzed. Uh, yeah. Kind of walk us through this paper and kind of the inspiration of how it came about of the the how and the when and the why now. Yeah. Um, well, Helen and I have been talking about pelvic diversity for a really long time, um, probably also about a decade. And she, from her perspective, sort of studying pelvic morphology across time and space uh, for Homo sapiens, she has really um, pushed back against the idea that there are there is like there are a few morphs um, of pelvic shape that's characterize humans where either you have like a male and a female pelvis or there were sort of four morphs that were really popular and you can still find these in certain textbooks uh, where you sort of have the wide and the flat or the heart shaped or whatever and she has published multiple papers that you know this kind of even this average is not representative even if you were to say that there are four averages that doesn't characterize the amount of human pelvic morphological variation. And then of course, from my perspective, I've always been interested in generally figuring out if there is a pelvic morphology that drives locomotor costs. And if there is some sort of pelvic morphology, that means your entire body's energetic burden of locomotion <laughs> changes. Also sort of connected with that, I've been at conferences where I've been told that if the the female pelvis has to be wider in one area to give birth, then these other kinds of pelvic morphology changes are inevitable. It's inevitable that if you have a wider birth canal, you therefore have all these other negative things because that's the way the pelvis like is designed or something like that. Or that's physics is the one I most often get. That's just physics, first principles, et cetera, et cetera. Um, So we set out to test some of these ideas. So on the one hand, we were sort of trying to figure out if there is a normal pelvic morphology and what that might be. And then on the second hand, we were trying to figure out if you have one kind of change, for example, a broadening, a widening of the midplane or of the acetabulae uh, difference between them or uh, sort of the outlet. If you make one of these changes, are other changes inevitable? And so what we found, which builds on other people's work, I think in particular, um, sort of Mark Grabowski and people like that who have been playing around with pelvic morphology for the past uh, 10 years, 
we found that a specific change in birth canal shape does not necessitate a specific change in any other part of the pelvis. So the ilium is doing something, the ischium is doing something, the sacrum can do something different. And so as we kind of expect based on the what we understand about developmental biology, um, you can have, for example, your ilia completely sorting with um, latitude or geography, but you can have your bias tabular breath doing something different and your pelvic canal sort of shape or size is actually doing a totally different thing. And so they're moving in different directions from each other. Sometimes females are bigger, sometimes males are bigger. Sometimes you'll have a midplane that's bigger than your biacetabular breadth. Sometimes you'll have a midplane that's more narrow than your biacetabular breadth. And so generally we play around with this notion that morphology is flexible and that that of course means that you can have selection and drift and history um, sort of acting on different parts of the pelvis uh, depending, on, uh, depending on the needs of the population. So you, you have another paper out in uh, Human Evolutionary Sciences. Yeah about female locomotor economy. Yeah. Um, before we dive into what you did for this paper, could you talk a little bit about the debate about female locomotor economy and yeah. how and if you feel it uh, contrast to that of males? Yeah, so um, this is a really big conversation in I think animal locomotion generally that then has been grabbed from sort of early 1980s work on comparative animal energetics and has been sort of taking mouse to elephant ideas of giant changes in sort of body size and applying it directly to human sexual dimorphism where on average in any given human group males are on average heavier uh, and bigger, so taller stature as well than females. And so because of those average ideas and mouse to elephant kind of normalization, the idea would be that females, human females might use absolutely less energy to do a particular locomotor task because smaller creatures use less energy. Um, you know that most of the energetic cost of locomotion is mass and velocity. And so if you have a smaller mass, you are automatically going to use less energy. And so then the idea would be that females could be more economical. That is sort of the word you're you're spending less because you're smaller. But the trade off would be and this is where sort of the sort of sexual dimorphism debates really come into play is that bigger creatures are considered more efficient because they use less energy per kilo of body mass in order to move across the landscape. And so efficiency then becomes touted as the number one value of locomotion. Um, and so males, therefore, with their increased efficiency because they're bigger, must be better walkers or whatever, movers across the landscape than females. And in this paper, we 
we're measuring that really carefully, measuring um, not just how much everybody weighed as they did sort of different tasks, but also, again, I'm, I'm always trying to figure out what people do in in sort of the world in which we think selection might potentially take place, which is not humans walking on a treadmill, but is humans out in nature. And so we were we had people carry their own babies that <laughs> that they they had created and they carry and they're walking through a forest. And so we weren't we were to some extent looking at what is it like for people to walk. But we also really want to understand what is it like when people do the task that you have to do in order to keep your population successful, and that is caring for your offspring. And so load carrying generally has been extremely interesting to me. So we were looking at whether or not women or men who are carrying their own children, who is the most efficient person to do that task, assuming because in this sample consistent with humans the women were on average smaller and so we did expect that the women would be um, would be using absolutely less energy but then we also wanted to show that when it comes to certain kinds of locomotion women are also equally or more efficient so they are also using less energy for their mass for the work that they are doing so I love this because, I mean, you have done like the full experimental version of this before where you have people on treadmills or walking yeah. on a trackway. And then yeah. with this paper, you actually have them out on a wooded trail that's, you yeah. know, not yeah. consistent or the word I'm looking for kind of trail. Yeah. And then, like yeah. you said, carrying their own kids and you had them carry the kids uh, front, hip and back, correct? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and then do it to a control. And so the first question, which has nothing to do with sex-based differences, just because people might want to know, yeah. what's the best way to carry a kid? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and you might need to define best. Like, do you yeah. want the higher caloric burn or do you want the more efficient caloric burn right Seriously. now? Seriously. <laughs> Seriously. It ends up that side load and front load carrying is not convenient especially when you're going up steep hills because your the baby is just like kind of in front of you trying to like move your leg up <laughs> you know how you sort of like move your leg so much higher you create a more acute angle between your torso and your leg and if there's a kid there it kind of impinges your full range of motion so what ends up happening is that you actually kind of slow down a little bit but the energetic cost for going at that speed is the same mm -hmm. as the energetic cost of carrying on the back. It's just when you carry your kid on the back, you can walk a lot faster because you have the full range of stride length that you might prefer to take under different sort of terrain conditions. So it ends up that it's more of a speed choice issue. All three of the loading positions essentially cost you the same. It do you, is just the mass and the speed. So this is well outside the questions, but do you also imagine it's a safety issue given if parents fell, if they were carrying, you know, infant on the front or even side, they're likely to yeah. fall forward in that case. Yeah. And the kid takes the brunt of that fall. Yeah, it's true. It's true. And I mean, because sort of American pediatric medicine does not recommend that you carry a like a two month old on your back because of neck strength. These children were all, these babies were all between the ages of six and six months and two years. 
And so in that sense, they could, they had sort of the body strength necessary to be carried on their back. I think that yes, when you're front loading a newborn and it's also really hard to see the ground, just like sort of when you're pregnant, your speed does slow down a little bit just because you're assessing, you're assessing the ground so that you don't trip. I imagine it might also be more economical to have a younger package, as it were, on the front for something like breastfeeding access, or of course, as you're mentioning, that head support yeah. versus needing to, you know, if, if even if you could carry that child on your back at that age, you got to sling them around every once in a while, that's going to slow you down yeah. because baby's got to eat. Yeah, I um, see a lot of ethnographic literature for like people who are sort of a habitual sling carrying culture, newborns are usually kind of like on the side. Yeah, they're sort of because they have easy access to the breast, but also you still kind of have some ability to carry something else on the other side or just sort of have a slightly broader stride length. So speaking of differences, when we're talking about sex-based differences, what what did you observe and, and how did you interpret? What does that mean uh, for our evolutionary yeah. past? So at every loading condition, women used both absolutely less energy, which we predicted, but also relatively less energy. So again, that didn't surprise me because I do authentically believe that females have to be energetically effective in order for humans to be as successful a species as they are. I think that how effective they were was pretty incredible to me. And it's possible that it has some issues with some of the things we already know about women. Women are slightly better at pacing themselves. You know, these people were given a task. Even though their speeds were not significantly different from each other, they didn't significantly vary their speed. Um, I think that there is something about sort of step-to-step -step variability that could potentially be more effective in the females because their efficiency was dramatically better, despite the fact that, you know, the babies were, you know, sort of an equivocal percent of their body mass. So they're doing, you know, the same task so much better. And we've shown, like Dr. Uh, Marcy Myers and I have shown in other, in other studies that even if the percent of mass is greater, for females, because you give females and males the same task, females are still more efficient than males. And so there is something, and I've argued that it's the pelvis because women have a lower center of mass, um, absolutely a lower center of mass relatively. And so there are reasons why we should expect females to be sort of more effective load carriers because they have a more stable gait in addition to some of these other things about planning. Um, and so, but these are all things that still very much need to be tested. So this might be a wild idea. And the more I think through it, the more I think I'm incorrect. But I also wonder about the possibility of pregnancy being a training period almost. Yeah. That yeah, yeah, females yeah. carrying, they are increasing their load over the course of yeah. nine months. But when yeah. you say, you know, the kids that they're carrying are two years, then any yeah. males who are regularly carrying those children should also have a training yeah. effect. But then yeah. again they weren't carrying that kid every single day for yeah. nine months without the ability true. to put it down. <laughs> it's true. And I, um, 
I've thought about this a lot because I have followed some women through pregnancy and unfortunately I just don't have DEXA data on mm. them. I would love it if someone did have DEXA data on them, but I'm just based on speed choices of women immediately postpartum. Their legs are definitely stronger. Mm -hmm. Their legs are stronger. I think that there is some sort of um, I think also the thermoregulation is significantly different. And so I think we have a number of things to suggest why women who are carrying specifically their children that they mm -hmm. gave birth to might have some advantages that had that come from the pregnancy them itself. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a cool thing to be a really fun long term study of getting folks yeah. who are not pregnant yet, but hope yep. to be doing yeah. all those tests through pregnancy yeah. and then postpartum as well. Yeah. Um, but anyway, speaking of which, because all of this is discussing kind of culminating in these ideas about reconstructions of our evolutionary past and we're females physically, I hate talking about it like this, physically capable of being hunters in our evolutionary past, either pre, during, or postpartum. Uh, and you and a bunch of students came out with a paper over the summer, uh, taking a look at a deep dive into the ethnographic evidence that we've had for, I don't know how long, you know, longer than I do. 100 yeah. years and more, um, looking at the records of actually how often were females hunting and how pervasive was it across different groups of people. So tell us a little bit about that project and how the students got involved and how... Uh... Well, the students got involved, um, it was during COVID. And it was, I had been interested in this topic for a really long time because I'm just again, because I read the ethnographic literature a lot in order to figure out what mobility patterns seem pervasive across human cultures. And so as I read about where women are walking, who women are walking with, what they're doing while they're walking, um, it seemed to me that even though I was reading the literature for other purposes, it seemed to me that a lot of people would mention in passing and the women, you know, would kill an animal or and a woman, you know, the women would be out hunting or things like this. And so then in 2020, uh, Randy Haas and a bunch of people from UC Davis published this paper that I, I know that you have read about the South American big game hunter. They read that paper in a lot of detail, listened to some of his interviews, and they said, you know, how often, how often does this happen? And so I said, well, this is a good COVID project because it involves libraries. <laughs> And so, uh, so they just, they, so we sort of set up a plan. We set up sort of what we were looking for um, in terms of what did an article have to say in order for us to, to think that the evidence was normative and not anecdotal. How did it identify the gender or the sex of the hunter? There's a pretty substantial amount of ethnographic literature that just says the hunters or the people or the community or the family, you know, and doesn't, you know, doesn't specify all of the people who were hunting were males or all of the people who have spears in that group were females or whatever it was. And so we set that up and then we basically reread papers for two years. And um, I feel like I should say that we didn't use AI. There's gonna be a, a couple of really interesting papers that coming out about hunting in the next year or so, not that are not 
mind that use AI to sort of pull out the word hunting from books that are available online. And that isn't what we did. We visited libraries that were open and we had librarians scan things and send them to us. And we read them ourselves because a lot of the time what ends up happening is that the anthropologist, the person writing will say, only men hunt, but then in the table, it will be like, here's all the game that the females brought back. And so this like juxtaposition of how people talk about what's happening um, and uh, how people differentiate between who's hunting, who's stabbing, who's tracking, who's carrying, you know, all of these different pieces. So we, you know, worked to be as consistently as possible for who is going out on the hunts and then who is coming back with animal products. And um, if it if the article talks about it as being opportunistic, if the article talks about it in terms of being purposeful, if the article talked about what types of weapons people use in different seasons. And so we put together, in a sense, a survey of how normative it is cross-culturally for females to engage in killing animals at some at some level. And so it ends up that it isn't an anecdote. Uh, cross-culturally, it is normative. There are, of course, still cultures where it's taboo. I, I really liked your point earlier, Christina, like even, and I, so I think this is, this is even more powerful to me, even in cultures where it is taboo, if a woman doesn't have a husband, like she just does it. I love this. I love this idea that, you know, to your point, yeah, at the end of the day, it's about survival. So, Absolutely. you know, we're all going to at some point Absolutely. break some sort of cultural taboo if it's the difference between life and death and what, yes. what won't a mother do? Yes. for a child. Exactly. So, you know, we'll figure it out. That's that's what it's all about. What um what's next for you? What Yeah, well, I I have a few papers that are sort of in review right now, so hopefully those will be interesting body composition and whether or not female like what proportions of bodies do sort of lend themselves to a lower center of mass. Um, I do have some data on pregnancy that I'm hoping to finally get out. Both the positive and the negative feedback about the hunting paper has kind of made me want to publish about this again. I think, as Kara said, like we were doing sort of a broad swath of how regular the pattern is, but I think there are additional questions for partly just that humans don't hunt that much. Like this is a very seasonal activity, even like even the Hadza, it's like four times a year is sort of what Kristen Hawks says. And so I, I think that there are ways we can create sort of a different narrative of annual way of gaining access to resources that I think is really interesting. And then finally, I'm going to look at head load carrying, which is the load carrying style I haven't looked at before and has a lot of incredible energetic questions surrounding can women really carry 40% of their mass on their head with no increase in their energetic cost like has been purported and so is a really interesting question i cannot wait to see that and if you're going to start with yeah. untrained people and like right we're going to slowly <laughs> increase how much shit you're carrying on your head yeah. uh that that might be a difficult irb <laughs> get through but yeah we'll that'll see. be 
fascinating. Uh, so it has been an absolute and utter delight to have you on the show. And we we used to ask, you know, what are you reading, watching, or listening to as, as our fun end question. But now we are trying to hint, hint, nudge, nudge the HBA into bringing back the talent show that used to exist before my time. Uh, so if there were a talent show, Kara, what would your talent be? Well, actually, I'm a classically trained musician, so oh. I... <laughs> what do you play? I play the viola. Which, do you know what that is? It's I have like... a rough idea, yeah. <laughs> my my well, husband's bigger. Play the viola. Oh my goodness. Amazing. <laughs> person who has ever even heard of this instrument let alone is classically trained yeah the Talmon viola duets might be in our future then oh no I can't play it now I just know what it is now Uh -uh. (laughs) so wonderful you were classically trained how often do you play nowadays well I played a lot until I became a working parent yeah and then (laughs) I play yeah I play a little bit less now my small person is old enough now and has her own hobbies and interests that it could be a good time to pick it up again yeah it's but I played yeah forever that's actually how I like paid my way through undergrad Oh, wow. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, My brother and I, we both took piano lessons from Mm -hmm. like age five to 15 or so. He decided to pick it up again the moment he got tenure. He's like, I have time. I'm going to like. So he and his daughter take piano lessons together, which is really, really adorable. Yeah, Uh, that is so lovely. Anyway, Kara, it has been, again, so wonderful to have you on the show. If anyone wants to reach out to you, what's the best way to get a hold of you or follow you on now the dozens of different social media opportunities that there are? Yeah, I'm still on X. Yeah, whatever it's called these days. Yeah. Um, I'm also on Instagram, but that's mostly I mostly post about art there. And so otherwise you can just email me. All right. We'll be sure to include that information in the show notes. Uh, so again, thank you for joining us. And yeah, it was wonderful to have you here. Thank you, Kara. Thank you.